Five or Flop, a podcast for the best and worst historical fiction has to offer. I'm your host, Grace. And I'm Erin. And each week we'll be reading a different historical fiction book to see if they're a five or a flop. Our theme for season one is reading around the world. We're back for the second time in the continent of Africa. And this week we're in Uganda with Chintu by Jennifer Nansiboga Makumbi. And before we get into anything else, we do want to apologize. I believe it was me and I did mispronounce this book last week. I called it Kintu when it is in fact Chintu. And now that we've properly done our research, we are aware of this and we'll be pronouncing it correctly moving forward. Yes. And that ties into the theme of the episode, which is this book is not for us, but we read it anyway. Yes. All right, what's new with you? Oh my gosh, we've all been extremely cold. Oh my god, all I hate week it. freezing snow, freezing ice, freezing rain. And blah, it blah, doesn't blah. it doesn't snow that often in DC. No, it didn't snow last year, but it's not great. But I have been snug and cozy inside. I work from home. I've been doing a lot of working, but at least I have been inside during the worst of the weather. And the best thing to note about Grace's home is that they don't have a functioning fireplace, but they do have a big TV where they put on a YouTube fireplace crackle video. It's extremely cozy and we all enjoy it. It really just sets the ambiance of the place. Yes. One day, maybe we'll have a real fireplace, but the fake fireplace 12-hour YouTube video will always have a special place in our hearts. It was funny when I was home at Christmas, my mom put that on, and I like I had to start laughing. You felt right at home. I did. I mean, it is your literal home, but your other home. I was going to spend this episode talking about how Santiago and I have been apartment hunting. However, I had a week from hell this week. Oh no! So, as I mentioned before, we went to Charlotte to go visit Santiago's family, and we were flying out Monday night, Martin Luther King Day, at the time of recording this. Um, We were flying from Charlotte Charlotte to Raleigh, Raleigh to D.C., and now I have personal beef with Raleigh before this because I briefly lived in Chapel Hill and it was the worst several months of my life. As we've discussed before. But, oh my God, so as soon as our flight from Charlotte took off, we got a notification that our other flight had been canceled from the snow. All flights to the DMV area were canceled, which was miserable. So we get there. It's like 7 p.m. We're like, okay, we'll get our bag. We'll rent a car. It's four hours. We'll be home by 11. Okay. So we go down to baggage, and our bag is not there. And American had tried to rebook us back on a flight to Charlotte, but we were like, absolutely not. Why would we go back there? So we're waiting for the bag, waiting for the bag, and nothing. So Santiago goes to wait at the bag counter and find out. And they say, oh, no, it says it's here. We'll go look for it. They go and look for it. Um, No, it's not there. They couldn't find it. So they're like, okay, just wait a bit more. We wound up waiting two and a half hours. And then finally we said, fuck it, we have to go. So by the time we actually leave the airport, it's about 10 o'clock. We get home at like 3 in the morning, completely delusional. At like 5 in the morning, his grad school calls him to tell him classes are canceled. It felt like... You know when you're in such a deep sleep and the slightest noise and you're like, what Ooh. year is it? Yeah, it was awful. That's bad. And then, so, okay, so I'm like delirious through work. After work, we go return the rental. We get the baggage. Santiago gets completely lost in the airport. Is running around for like 20 minutes. This is an airport we fly out of all the time. Okay, baby. So then we get <laughs> Not the Not to victim blame. We get the bag and when we get home, we look at the tracking. It had never left the Raleigh airport until that morning. It was there the entire two and a half hours. I was absolutely livid. It flew into DCI that morning. Well, airport, flop. American Airlines. flop, Flop. American Airlines is my new enemy. Enemy number one, actually. That is very sad because I have an American Airlines credit card on the way to me in the mail. 
Did you get Santiago's referral code? He's going to be really bad if he hears this and you didn't. I didn't. It's um, okay. He doesn't listen to the pod as much as he should. He is actually probably going to get rid of his American credit card after all of this. Okay, well. It was an absolute nightmare. I but can't say that I'm not going to be a loyal American credit card customer, okay. but we'll see. It's that okay. remains to be seen. You know, we'll see how it goes for you. And then if they treat you like shit and lose <laughs> your back. And the worst part, Grace, my mom got me an air tag for Christmas and I hadn't set it up yet. Aww. So we could have avoided Just air tagged it. Well, I yeah. do have a flight on American next month, so I'll tell you if it goes bad. Is that when you're headed to Savannah? It is when I'm headed to Savannah. Okay. That actually ties into what I'm reading this week. Okay, well, let's segue right there. Yes. So every year... My mom and I go to the Savannah Book Festival, Mm -hmm. and it is so fun every year, partially because we get to go to Savannah, Georgia in February, and it's always nice there, and it's always gross here. And partially because your mom is great and a loyal podcast listener. Yes. One of, if not the most loyal (laughs) podcast listener, discounting also your mother, who is a very loyal listener. But we like to read some of the books sometimes from the people that we go see. Mm -hmm. And this year, one of the featured speakers is Ruth Ware, the thriller author. Have you read her before? No, but you mentioned her last week. So I do. I'm familiar with who you're talking about now. Yes. So I've never read her before either. I will pick up a thriller now and again, but I'm not like a thriller girl. I'm not churning through them. As opposed to me, who loves thrillers. And my mom isn't either. So we're like, okay, let's read some Ruth Ware. So I've started Zero Days, which is maybe not her newest, but it's one of her newer ones. And I'm about a third of the way through. Mm -hmm. And it's good so far, but it's highly stressful. Okay. Like, I would not be thriving if I was this girl. You know how we always say, like, oh, you and I, like, if there was a zombie apocalypse, we would just want to die immediately. Oh, i just kill myself. Like, if someone was trying to frame me for my husband's murder, I don't think I would have the wherewithal to, like, go on the road and, like, break out of a police station. I think I would just live a bad life in prison. Like, that, yeah. I think, so it's a good thing that hasn't happened to me. But, you know. Ruth Ware can, I don't know how she's going to get her out of this one, but hopefully she will. Okay, well, good to know. Yeah, what about you? What are you reading? I am reading She Would Be King by Weatu Moore, and I'm probably mispronouncing that name. Mm -hmm. It's another Africa book, which is really fun, which is um, a retelling of Liberia's formation, according to the Google page I have pulled up right now. Okay. I'm like 90 pages in. I really like it. It's historical fiction seeming like it meets a little like magical realism well magical realism was one of the tags on storygraph when i saw that you posted you were reading it yes and i'm liking it a lot so i was actually trying to read a different historical fiction book called the princes of ireland i saw and it was 800 pages and i don't even think it was a flop because it wasn't bad it was just so long and i'm not committed to reading a book that long right now okay yeah. so i made it 200 and when it wasn't going fast enough i was like i'm can't do it. Do you it think, was really interesting, but I was like, I can't do it. Do you think you'll pick it up later, or do you think this is one of the ones that you're just like, this is good, not for me? I think it's like that. Okay. One thing I learned, and for historical fiction, it seems like I do a lot of research because of the podcast. I only research pod books. Yeah. I don't look up a detailed history of every book I read. Uh-huh. But some this book takes place in Ireland, and apparently it's like a saga, and there's like many, many books co- covering the entire history. Oh, But gosh. it starts in the 400s. And apparently, and again, I don't know if this is true, but apparently as a way of like showing respect and greeting, men to each other would suck each other's nipples as a, (laughs) as like an honorific. That did, is that true? I don't know. That sounds really made up. And apparently the High King of Ireland to like secure his position, he would have to have sex with a horse. That sounds super made up. But I don't think it is made up because this book is really well researched. Okay, well, we're going to have to do some Googling later, because now... Yeah, now we need to look this up for the pod. Yeah, that seems crazy, if true, and I doubt if true. But 
if the book is mostly fact, why would you put that in <laughs> if it's not true? For fun, I guess. Sounds I don't know. For kicks. For shits and giggles. So since we're on the subject of weird sex stuff in books, time to move on to Chintu. All right. Erin, hit us with the synopsis. Yes. First published in Kenya in 2014 to critical and popular acclaim, Chintu is a modern classic, a multi-layered narrative that reimagines the history of Uganda through the cursed bloodline of the Chintu clan. Divided into six sections, the novel begins in 1750, when Chintu Kita sets out for the capital to pledge his allegiance to the new leader of the Buganda kingdom. Along the way, he unleashes a curse that will plague his family for generations. In an ambitious tale of a clan and a nation, Makumbi weaves together the stories of Chintu's descendants as they seek to break from the burden of their shared past and reconcile the inheritance of tradition and the modern world for their future. Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. Um, and when this novel is called multi-layered, um, yeah, that's accurate, I would yeah. say. This is a book that is very erudite. That's the word that yes. I've settled on to describe it. Like, you may have heard in that synopsis, the synopsis was more theme and idea than plot. Yeah. And there is definitely plot in the book, but it is heavy on the theme and idea. So it's not an insanely long book. It's maybe a 450-page book. It's mm-hmm. on the side of long, but, but it's it mostly also, just dense. It also had really small text. Yes. It packs a lot of things in. It takes time to read this book. You have to read this book slowly. Yeah. When I was reading through reviews of this book after I finished, one that really stood out to me said, you have to pay attention while reading this. Yes. There's, there's some books like I would say like Snowflower. I didn't really have to pay attention while reading it to understand and to follow along. There's yeah. parts I could, like the foot binding, I skimmed over that and I still know what was going on. If I had skimmed over anything in this book, I would have missed it. And I probably did. This is not a book that you can listen to on audio like while you do the dishes. This is a book that you sit down like with your highlighter and you read like yeah. 20 pages at a time. And that's, you know, that's kind of it. And again, this may not be for everyone. But if that's you, if you're that kind of reader, you're probably going to love it. Do you want to give us some background on Jennifer Nansabuga Makumbi? Sure. So, Chintu won the Kwani Manuscript Project in 2013, which is a literary prize for unpublished manuscripts by African authors both across the continent and the African diaspora. Okay. And this author actually, I believe at this time, but if not a bit after, lived in the UK. Okay. Um. So her most recent book is The First Woman, which is also known in, I believe, the U.S. and Canada as A Girl is a Body of Water. I may have heard of that, actually. Yeah, that definitely sounded familiar. When I, I haven't read it for sure, but it sounded familiar. I know that she had, I already knew she had other books because when I went to the bookstore to look for Chintu, mm-hmm. they didn't have it, but they had another book by her, like, alphabetically on the shelf. Yeah, she is... Again, another review I was reading basically called her, like, in circles that know about her work, she is a rock star. That's what I've heard. Like, like everything is... that I've looked up about her, like, shoot to the moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very respected. Um, Chintu originally had trouble finding a British publisher due to the historical unfamiliarity to a lot of white and Western cultures, which is definitely something we're going to be getting into. 100%. Um, And this novel is written for Ugandans and about their cultural history. I guess the author was influenced a lot by the book Things Fall Apart. Yes. And that's actually a lot of the stuff that's contained in Chintu Mm -hmm. I was not familiar with. 
but I have read and really love Things Fall Apart. Okay, which is good because I have not read it. And okay. it, that comes up a bit in the history section about how that was an influence. Okay, yes, that was a fabulous book. So you have not read anything else by Miss Jennifer, but you are familiar not. with some of her other works. Were you familiar with Chintu before reading it? No, actually, not at all. I had no. never heard of it before. I hadn't either. Um, it mostly came up in our search when we were looking for Africa books to spotlight, hence why we weren't clear on the pronunciation to begin with. However, mm-hmm. I have seen some of our TikTok followers mention it. Yes, absolutely. And also, we want to emphasize, a couple weeks ago, we were complaining that we had a dearth of options for Australia. Africa, that was not the case. We had options. We did. And we carefully selected Shintu from our pile of options. We did. When we were looking, it seemed to be one of the most popular. And acclaimed. And acclaimed and we, in yeah. modern periods, especially. And I think this was a bit more of an accident, but it ended up being really nice that we picked this book because our other Africa book, Homegoing, was so focused on the African diaspora Mm -hmm. and colonization and the Atlantic slave trade and all of that. And this book very purposefully does not focus on those things Mm -hmm. and focuses about the history of Uganda by and for and about Ugandans. It's not about Europe. It's just about Uganda as a country. And about how people lived it. You know, it's when you get a lot of history books, especially in the West about Africa, it's a lot of generalizations that make it seem like the only important thing happening was colonialism. Yes. But for the people who lived there and actually experienced it, they had a very different sense in mind of what history was important at the time, you know? Yes. So and I think, I'll get into that in the history section. Too. Yes. So I'm glad that kind of unintentionally that we have paired this book with Homegoing for kind of two different approaches to those themes. It's also very interesting that both of our Africa books happen to be generational stories and both done very, very differently. Yes. That's one of the things. Well, is there anything you did the research? Do you want to lead off with anything or can I hop right in with my thoughts? Um, I think just one thing I want to note about the research and such. Like I said, I really didn't have much information about this going into it. Um, But I almost enjoyed researching and learning more about the book itself than actually reading it. I think due to my own lack of historical understanding and context, Mm -hmm. that getting all the knowledge that is woven into this book made me appreciate it so much more. Yes. Like, this is the information that if you were reading this book, say, like, this would be a great book to read in, like, a college-level English course. Yes. Like, I would love to have this book broken down for me by, like, someone who really knows their salt. I kind of – I can agree with you because I feel the same way. I really enjoyed doing the research for – the book that you guys are going to hear in our season finale that's really involved that like you and I reading, you know, we do some scrutinizing when we're reading, but we're not doing like a huge intensive breakdown. We're reading as a normal person would Mm -hmm. pick up a book and read. So to find those extra layers that you might not get just flipping through the pages is really enlightening, especially in a book like this, where I already said it's very smart and very information heavy. Yes, it is. And information that you and I are not necessarily familiar with off jump. Mm -hmm. So real quick, before we get deep into our discussion, we'll give our little disclaimer real quick that we're judging the book on its contents and not on any real life history or figures that it's based on. And also we will be proceeding with full spoilers. So please be informed and wary of that. Yes. All right, Grace, you want to get us started? Yes. So this book is Let's talk about the generational structure, because we mentioned homegoing in comparison that way. Yes. Homegoing was 
very straight down the line. It was literally linear. Like yes. you move from parent to child to child. Yes. And the complication was that there were two family lines that you were following, but you knew the direction that you were going and it was down. And you had a family tree. Yes. And I was expecting a lot of jumping around in Chintu that we didn't really get. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I hoped for a little more of it. There are only two timelines, 1750 and 2004. Mm -hmm. And actually, the bulk of the book does take place in 2004. So the longer we read, we were like, oh, historical fiction, borderline. You did get some flashbacks to when some of the 2004 characters were growing up, maybe in like the yes. 80s, but even still, the bulk of it was that 2004. Yes, the, the present day action is rooted in then. So we I think we've gotten this book in on kind of a technicality, but that's yeah. okay. So I thought it would be, there were several point of view characters. Mm -hmm. There was one who was the 1750 point of view character, who is the titular Chintu, mm -hmm. who is the shared ancestor of all of the 2004 characters. Yes. So I thought we would get like a 1750, an 1830, an in, 1870, yeah. A 1940, but we I didn't. I went in expecting the exact same thing. Yes. And I don't think it was a problem that we didn't. I think the story that, that Jennifer McCombie set out to tell, like, this is the way that she could tell it. Mm -hmm. I just was, I think maybe nothing even on the back of the book implied to me that it would go, like, generation by generation. I think, honestly, just reading, like, homegoing and other generational books also made I would me even, think that it would be like that i would even throw the cartographer's secret in there when they just flip back between the two yeah i so, was also kind of expecting a structure where we'd get like okay one chapter is one person then we flip back and then we flip back yes because we get an introductory chapter that's in 2004 that's mm -hmm. very brief and then we get about 90 pages of the original chintu in mm -hmm. 1750 and then all of the rest of it is three or four different perspectives of the characters from the present day. I guess I'll say present day from yeah. 2004. And we don't go back to 1750. But I think that those chapters, I had two kind of sections of the book that were my favorite. I struggled with some of this book, partially because the prose is so dense and smart, and partially because all of the characters have multiple names and they're very similar to each other yes. and there's a lot of references to places so the sentences are dense also in just the amount of proper nouns mm -hmm. but there were two sections of the book that I really enjoyed and I felt like reading them was much easier and that it flowed and one of them was the introduction at the beginning of Chintu of the titular Chintu mm -hmm. He, we are introduced to him and to his two sons who are twins and to his two wives who are twins. Mm -hmm. And that shows us the echo of those themes come back again and again. Most of the other characters are twins or have children for twins. Twins mm -hmm. is a very strong recurring theme throughout the whole book. And it sets up the idea that what Chintu does, which is kill his son accidentally by striking him on the head and giving him an improper burial curses the rest of the family for generations. And the characters in 2004 have to come back together to try and get rid of this curse on yes. their family. Because and you just see that they've been like completely afflicted with misfortune through the entire, you know, resulting three centuries. And basically what the curse is, is that Chintu accidentally kills like his, almost like his foster son. Yes. Um, and then the father finds out and puts a curse on him yes. and his entire family line. Yes. And you get three male characters, you get one female character. That was an interesting choice to me to only write one female character 
And I don't think it was necessarily a bad thing. I yeah. just wonder, I just, I don't know. I just want to know what the decision was I think behind I, that. I don't have the full information, but I have a little bit when we get to the history section that might answer some of those questions for you. Okay. Okay. So yes. So parts of the book were difficult to read, I think because she did not shy away from being very descriptive in parts that were difficult subjects. There's a murder that we see depicted in detail. Mm -hmm. There's a girl, the female character grows up completely impoverished and abused Mm -hmm. and is kidnapped at one point, and we see all of that. So there are parts of it that these things are not things that you want to gloss over, but as a reader, there are difficult moments. Mm -hmm. So I can't say I always enjoyed reading this book. Yeah, that's fair. There were parts of it that tripped me up. I would agree. I struggled with some of that as well, mostly because I'm a pretty queasy person. Mm-hmm. So with some of those hard descriptions, hard you know imagery in there, I will say I thought it fit really well with the theme of like curses and like that generational trauma. In exactly. The form of a curse. So I'm not even complaining about it from the perspective of like this shouldn't have been here. Yeah. It's not done well because there are tons of books that I can say it shouldn't have been here and it's not done yes. well. Like I see what it's in service of, but I think between that and the sections that are difficult to read just in terms of the language and not of what they're describing. There were several parts of this book that I found difficult to get through, and I think it includes like a bulk, the bulk of the middle, essentially. Yeah, it, and like I said, this book is not short. No, it took a very different approach to those graphic things than, say, like Fruit of the Drunken Tree, where Patrono was gang raped, and it was very high-level, dreamy language, so you don't really get the yes, it, that hard was not details. a that was not a description of an assault. It was kind of like a almost a poem about one. Yeah, like you knew it was happening, but you weren't. In you the were weeds, slightly removed, as opposed to Chintu, where you were in the weeds of the language. Yes, and this is things like you know a character being knocked to the ground, and you're hearing about like his skull and his brain and things that you should not that you don't want to see, essentially. Mm-hmm. I would like to hear some of your thoughts on kind of the two different groupings of characters because we had the 1700s and we had the 2000s. And for me, I liked the 1700s characters a lot better and wanted them, not that I liked them better, I felt they were stronger characters. Yes, And I, I agree. wanted them in more of the novel. Yes, I would have liked to see what happened to them later. I think they had to be shored up really strong because they were the foundation. Yes. And when we talk about the 1750 characters, we mean Chintu, his two wives, his two sons. Mm-hmm. There are other peripheral characters, but there are those are the important ones that come up again and again and again that are important to like the lineage of the curse. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed reading about those characters. I felt like their emotions, even from, for example, the two wives, we never get a point of view on them, Mm -hmm. but I felt like I understood both of them so strongly. Like one sister is the sister that Chintu really loved. The other one he only married because he had to because that was the belief if you married a twin you had to marry the other one. Mm -hmm. You couldn't separate twins because that was unnatural. One of them was infertile so the other one carried all of the children. Mm -hmm. I felt like I understood the emotions of those characters even though we weren't in their heads. I felt a little bit removed from some of the later characters Mm -hmm. but also frankly some of the later characters, maybe because the historical ones, I they're so removed from me as a person. Yeah. 
the ones in 2004 are a little bit closer mm-hmm. because, you know, we live in the 21st century that, like, I would not have wanted to know some of those people. No. The super Christian ones? Mm-mm. Yeah. I would not have wanted to get to know, I don't know, the incest twins. Oh, my God. The incest twins. That was another thing about this book that, again, I can't even say, like, I think some of this was a little less necessary than the gory stuff. Yeah. There was weird sex stuff in this book. There was, there was a lot of talk about sex. Like, I remember reading this in my notes. There was, like, pages where Chintu is just talking about how much he fucks and how tired he is from fucking all the time. Yes. He's like, oh, my gosh, because he has a title. He he's has, a, like, all these wives and, like. Yeah, he's like, has to travel great distances to see all of his wives. And he's like, I'm so tired from having to have sex with all my wives all the time. There's a long chapter that's just about preparing Chintu's oldest son for his wedding night. Yeah. And so all the men are talking about, like, here's what you have to do with women. Mm-hmm. And that I did not enjoy. No. That, and that was the kind of stuff I felt was a pinch unnecessary. Could have yeah. been dialed back. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, we're women. Of course, we don't like that as much because this is not, you know, it's accurately reflecting. Well, I guess no one can accurately reflect how people in 1750 talked about sex because because none, none of us were there. But, you know, I think that men would probably not be thinking about women and their comfort at that time. Yeah, no. So I think we can safely assume we wouldn't have liked it. Yes. But there was, yeah, throughout the whole book, there was weird sex stuff. Yeah, it was it was pretty common. The root of the curse basically comes down to mental illness. Like, that's the big theme. That's what's plaguing this family, essentially. Yes. But it's viewed as a curse, which I thought was interesting because it stemmed from, you know, the original curse, but on Shinto. Yes. And I really liked that. I liked how that manifested. Me too. And it comes into play at the end also. Yeah. I can go into that maybe a little bit now is a good time for that. Yeah. Because the character that you're introduced to last is a man named Meezy. Mm-hmm. And he is... An, I loved him. He was my favorite character. I said earlier there was a part at the beginning and a part at the end that I felt flowed and felt really easy to read mm-hmm. and pleasant and fun to... Or not pleasant, but was enjoyable to read. And Meezy's point of view chapter was the second. And I really liked him. He's an older man. He lives with his wife and his uh, sister-in-law and several of his grandchildren. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know that he comes from this Chintu clan until he's contacted to come and help break the curse. Mm -hmm. He And it's not even that I was like, oh, all of these other characters have all these problems and all of these chapters are just about horrible things and weird sex stuff and blah, blah, blah. And Meezy's life is great because he has his own problems. Mm -hmm. But that something about the way that character was written – I just enjoyed reading it so yeah. much more. But he starts and he's, you know, aging and he's growing older, but he's still is in his head. Mm-hmm. He's still sharp. He's still clear. And in the end, in the process of lifting that curse, he loses his son. He has several sons that have all been killed. He has one left. That son is also killed. And he essentially loses his mind. Yeah. And that's how it ends, knowing that, Um, that he has and it's not coming back. Mm -hmm. And that's a bittersweet end. It's the crescendo of this theme that the curse manifests as mental illness. And I liked that ending, kind of. I wished for more happy ending, of course. I know. Because some of the characters did get a happy ending. 
But it also goes to show how that generational trauma and how that generational mental illness, it doesn't just go away. Like, exactly. It's, not, it's like I said at the end of Fruit of the Drunken Tree, like you could still tell how the characters were still going to have trauma and still be impacted by all of this. And it wasn't just neatly packaged up in a bow and resolved. Yes. And the fact that it the ending was upsetting, but it you were upset because you cared about the characters. Mm-hmm. Like if you didn't care about Meezy, then you you would just close the book and be like, whatever, and go on with your life, yeah. you know? And then you said, like, some other characters have a- happy endings. For example, the female character, her name is Suubi, mm-hmm. and she essentially, she grew up, like, on the streets, basically. No family, no one loved her. She was starving. She was abused, all of this. Like, her chapter, I think, is the worst in terms of just, like, bam, 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 like, girl can't catch a break. But <laughs> she, she... She had it rough. Yes, During the curse breaking, she gets possessed by one of the wives. It's, you know, like, she's bad time. She's a bad time. But at the end, she has, like, a boyfriend who is not outside of the family, and he's just, like, they're supporting her. It's implied they're going to be together and get married, and she has, like, roots to settle into now. But she still has all of that baggage from her horrible childhood. Yeah, and I think So she's... It's not wrapped up in a bow, but it's, you know, a step towards the future, but it's not unrealistic. I think it's interesting how those family ties are so important in breaking this curse because a lot of the family, I consider it kind of like a family reunion in my head. Yeah. A lot of these family members didn't want to go to this. No, it wasn't fun. And a lot of them, like, so Ubi didn't know anyone. When she was with her boyfriend, they talked about how she would get, like, physical pain because she would have to make up family stories and make up people to talk about for anecdotes. And I think that that family ties goes into such an important element of the theme because it's not just going to go away, but now you know you're not alone in it. Yeah. You're not the only one struggling. You have a shared history that you didn't know about before. Mm -hmm. And also sometimes, you know, sometimes you like your family and sometimes you don't. Yeah. But you always have them. And even if they're not there, their absence is a presence in your life. Yes. So it's just really about the ties of like the same thing. Like none of those people in the modern day at the family reunion, knew Chintu. He mm-hmm. died 300 years before. But they all were still feeling the repercussions of his life and his actions. Mm-hmm. And even his actions, that it wasn't just any curse. It was a curse brought on by him killing his foster son, like a member of his family. Yes. It was all very linked in ways that I think we're not even beginning to unpack. Yeah. And I don't know if we'll be truly able to unpack every single layer of it in this hour-ish long podcast. No. Consider this um, an introduction to (laughs) Chintu. And going back to the curse breaking, you mentioned possession. And it's very interesting because I just talked about a book with magical realism involved in it. Mm -hmm. And this is also a book with magical realism. A hundred percent. Because we're led to believe that this curse is genuine. Like, this is a real curse. Yes. But, I mean, obviously, as a reader in modern day, we're reading this modern day America, we would assume it's not a real curse. It's, you mm-hmm. know, family family trauma, mental illnesses can be hereditary. Mm-hmm. But it does hint to that curse being the truth because Saubi is possessed. Yes. So she's possessed by, as she had a twin who died in the womb who, like, kind of took on... The spirit of, like, Chintu's wife that he yes. didn't like is what I understood from it. Yes. And that was how she got p- possessed. And then, you know, they were able to pull her out of that. So at the end, you're kind of left wondering of, oh, is this 
curse truly going to be broken or is it going to continue to manifest? Yes. I was not convinced that they were going to break it because it seemed like they weren't doing a good job. No, it seemed I mean, like things were kind of going to shit. Yeah. I mean, honestly, at least the beginning of it, I was like, oh, what this is teaching us is that they're not going to be able to break the curse because they can't overcome the family strife to do yeah. it. Like, they're one of them... Like, there's a whole plot line where they need someone else of Rwandan blood to volunteer to be possessed, essentially. Mm -hmm. And one guy says, I'll do it. My father was Rwandan. And then as a result, they have to tell him, no, actually, you're the result of twin incest. Your father's not Rwandan. And that's a whole big thing. That had a lot of layers to it. Yeah. We keep bringing that up because neither of us liked it. Yeah. And it was very (laughs) omnipresent. I don't really understand. I don't. I didn't really understand what it added. No, maybe not. I don't know. I also very much thought Saubi was the twins' child. Oh. I don't. I think it's because when I was reading her section, hers is like the second section. Yeah. Two. It was still early enough that I'm like, oh, they're all going to be very clearly interconnected. We're going to see who's. Yes, who. we didn't really know. Each section had their own like family unit, really. Mm-hmm. But the different people from the different point of view chapters, we know that they're all related. They're all like but we distant don't, cousins. Yeah, but we don't know like, oh, your mother was related to your father. Yeah, it's very like, much not like homegoing where we have a direct line. No, and almost it doesn't matter. Because no, I don't think it does. Well, also then like people in like kind of the same that we saw in Snowflower we just have a very different idea in America and in the West of the family unit. Yeah. And it is much smaller and tighter than the Asian or the, in this case, the Ugandan Mm -hmm. um, idea of the family unit because theirs is bigger and more Mm all-encompassing. I have a question actually about one of the notes you have in our script document here. Oh, okay. Um, You wrote, the first 300 pages is almost like a user manual for the last 100 pages. And I want to hear more about that. Yes. Because I'm pretty sure I agree with you. I feel like all of the other stuff is information that you need to make the end work. Yes. The first 300 pages are, you get the introduction from Chintu from 1750, all of the stuff that goes down there. I said those characters are foundational, mm-hmm. and they are, because the later characters are all kind of just those people passed down, not reincarnated quite, but the same spirits as mm-hmm. the original characters. Then you get all of the points of view from the people that will be at the family reunion. Mm-hmm. Then you get the family reunion. You need all of that set up I feel like to make the ending work because mm-hmm. then you get all this step by step of you get Saubi being possessed. You get the son of the twins volunteering on the basis that he is Rwandan. You get Nisi losing his last son and losing his mind. And that's mm-hmm. the closer to the book. I think I said before the middle of the book was the most difficult part for me to read and parts of it I did need to push through. I wasn't always reading it for enjoyment. It felt at points for me that I was reading it not to see what would happen next, but to get to what happened next. Yes. Like, to get to the reunion at the end, to get to the curse breaking. Because I knew it was coming, but, like, getting there was a challenge. Yes. And like I said, honestly, so much of it was because it was just so many proper nouns. And this seems to be, like, a stupid thing to fixate on. But when each sentence has... The name of a character and it's not always the same name for the same character or it's the same name but a different character yeah or it's the same name but a different character both of those are used interchangeably and one or two names of places it's 
slow going. And so kind of getting over the hump of the middle to get to the end. And it's not like it's work. It pays off because you need that information. Mm -hmm. So I didn't always like tuck in with my blankie at night to pick up my book like I'm doing with my Ruth Ware. Yeah, no, it's not the same kind of book. No, I. It it doesn't pretend to be. It doesn't. No, it it doesn't. Yeah, it is what it is. But we, I think, kind of felt the same where we had like a that part at the end that really just like, like it kicked off way easier once we had all the backstory about the characters and then we could bring them all together. Yeah. And then we knew, I feel like I didn't know what was coming, but every time something happened, I would be like, yes, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because of this other thing that I was reading about. Yeah. Because when you're reading about this in the setup, you don't know why those things are important. You don't know what parts of that are gonna come back. Like I didn't know that the father being Rwandan yeah. was going to be important later. I didn't know, like, blah, 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 blah. So I think you do read the beginning of of Chintu, and not even the beginning. I feel like you read the beginning and the middle of Chintu as set up for the end. And this is so stupid because I feel like saying that out loud, like, of course, all books, the beginning and yeah, the middle right. are set up for the end. But I think that's even in a much more explicit way here than in a lot of the other books that we've read. I would agree. I think you have it right there. I think you really hit on what I... F- you put into words what I felt when I was reading that I couldn't do. Yeah. And I think that's now is the right time to emphasize that you and I both struggled reading this book a little bit. Yes. We recognize that it's a good book. Yes. We recognize that we, it's a very important book. We have said before, and we'll say again, that we think that those books are always like, just because a book is not the best for readability doesn't mean it's not good and vice versa. Yeah. We enjoy a lot of different kinds of books. We don't enjoy sometimes books that are really good. We struggled with this one. There, It was strong at the end. We didn't dislike it. But we are acknowledging, like, we're not who this book was written for. Mm-hmm. This was a book, like you said in the yeah. intro, about by four Ugandans. Yeah. And if we read it and like it, great. But if we don't, Jennifer it, doesn't if, really care. Yeah. If we don't, who cares? We're not the audience. The yes. audience. who The people who this book is for love this book. Yes. And it has been an extreme success for Jennifer McCombie, it has been an extreme success in Uganda for Ugandans. Mm-hmm. It's a story about them. And it. I think even though it only goes between those two generations, you absolutely could call it an epic. Yeah. Just for the scale of its language. Yes, definitely. So I think all of our difficulties that we had with it don't discount it as being a great book. But it's not one that I know that I would have finished had we not been reading it for this podcast. It definitely feels like one of those books that's a modern day classic. It's going to be read in schools. It's going to be discussed. Yes. But it might be like, you know how you read books in school and it wasn't your favorite, but you understand why it's a classic? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's this how this is, book fell for me. Yes. I hold strong to when I said earlier, like this book should be broken down by college professors. Yes. Like this is a perfect book to be in that kind of course. And again, like I read Things Fall Apart in school. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I would have read it by now. Maybe I would have if I hadn't been for school, but I read it in my freshman year of high school. And it's an excellent book. And that's a book that people should be reading. Mm-hmm. It's not, I wouldn't put it on par with this in terms of it's shorter and I would say much more readable. Yeah. But I 
again, that doesn't matter necessarily 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. But that's a book that I read for school that I have been thinking about ever since I read it pretty much. Yeah. That's a really important book. And then, you know, it was written decades and decades ago. Mm-hmm. It's had time to kind of fade out of being like, a really good book that someone wrote recently into like a modern classic. Yeah. And I think this book will see where the test of time takes it, mm-hmm. but the inspirations from Things Fall Apart in this book are very clear. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Like I said, I had not read Things Fall Apart. Yes. Um, however, people who were in other English classes than mine did read it. Mm-hmm. So I completely understand where you're coming from. Yes. And as I said at the beginning, doing the research for this book actually made me appreciate it a lot more because I understood a lot more of it. So I think we can segue into the research. Yes, I would love to hear what you have to tell me. I'm very excited. So there's going to be several different categories for this, but I'm actually going to start with the name Chintu. Please do. So Chintu in uh, Bugandan legend is the first man in the creation myth. So that is where the name comes from. That is where the titular character comes from. Now, the Chintu in the book is not, he's not the first man alive. We know this. But he's meant to represent that. He's the head of the family line, is meant as a representation of the creation myth and a representation that the curse originates from him. Okay, so if we were reading a book that was like a generational novel from like Catholic Italy, it would be the same as if the guy was called Adam. Yes, it would be. Okay. It would be. Um, that seems, for me, it seems very fitting. Yeah, and I think so. I, I Reading that, I'm like, this makes so much sense to me that this is, the name is important enough to be the title of the book. All of that. And like we said, all of the subsequent characters are kind of renamed with the names of the original characters. So even though you're not in 1750, the whole book, the name Chintu is over and over and over and over. Yes. Um, there are references to very specific Ugandan landmarks that are are completely true, are based on the land there. The desert that Chintu crosses where he does wind up killing his foster son, that's real and is still referenced today in certain greetings. Um, there's a specific Ugandan greeting that's meant to greet travelers arriving in Kampala, referencing the difficult journey of crossing the desert. Oh, okay. So it's very widely known as like this... It wasn't exaggerated in the book. It was. Yeah. It is widely known as this treacherous feat, which obviously in modern day, it's a lot more doable. But in the 1750s, like... A lot of people did die. Well, it's interesting, like, how things like that, they work their way into our, like, everyday speech. Mm -hmm. Like, because right now, we wouldn't develop a phrase that's like, wow, great job for crossing the treacherous desert because we have cars and airplanes and water bottles. (laughs) Yeah. But we still say that because back in the day, our ancestors said, good job crossing the treacherous desert. However, some of the landmarks were moved and the dates of certain provinces added to the Bugana Kingdom were altered just to make it fit a bit more in this, in the book and in mm. the span of the novel. Okay. So a little bit of the historical accuracy was, you know, kind of moved around for convenience. For me, because I didn't really know about, I don't really know many of the landmarks in Uganda, it didn't detract from my reading. Yeah. And I don't know if it would, even if I did, like, I feel like that type of thing. Yeah doesn't matter a ton to me when people are like oh i moved up this event happening in my book by like 10 years or whatever and and landmarks you think i just think the u.s like people probably think texas and florida are a lot closer together and how it's represented in media it would seem like they are yeah that's very normal i mean and also i don't necessarily think uganda is a small country just in terms of like square mileage but also it's not like that big yeah there's bigger countries yeah so you know fine to me, that's, like, it's not like, that important. It's like how British people think a 40-minute drive is, like, insane and 40 <laughs> minutes wouldn't even get me out of Florida, you know? Yeah. 
Um, this is one of the few novels to focus on African history without centralizing on colonization, independence from colonizers, um, the slave trade, violence, and war. So as we talked about homegoing, one of the major themes was the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. This is not the case here. Mm -hmm. So colonization is vastly left out and not discussed in this novel. I think it's kind of hinted at at points, especially when like Christian with the Christian characters and Christianity brings yes. up. Yes, yes. However, it's vastly left out and not really talked about. And to me, this omission does not detract from the historical accuracy at all. No. But in any case, I think it maybe adds and makes it a bit more accurate because it shows that the history that's taking place on the ground that people were actually living is often not what's remembered in history books. What's remembered in history books, you think history books, I mean like textbooks. Yeah. You think are the big, the things that are on a global scale that yeah. involve multiple countries. Mm. However, I did read one review that said the author wanted to focus on telling the story of Uganda with colonization put in perspective. Not to say that the colonial encounter wasn't important, but that it wasn't the only thing that was important. Yes. And I thought that was an incredible way to summarize it because there was a million other things going on. That wasn't their sole focus. People living in Uganda at the time every waking thought was an oh colonization how is this impacting global politics yeah one of my favorite ways to think about history is i think i had a teacher say this to me years ago i can't remember who and i'm very sorry for that but saying like people who were alive during the renaissance weren't walking around being like it's the renaissance exactly like that's something that we put on after the fact and also i enjoyed one of the themes in this book which i really liked and i would have loved even more like even more attention paid to it was the idea of is there a place in modern Africa for traditional Africa? Yeah. Like again with the theme of the curse being literal or not or like mm -hmm. is that kind of those older world beliefs, do they have a place in modern Uganda? Mm -hmm. And that ties in really well as like, that's an intrinsic theme. Yeah, That's not something that would have come up. It's not a question of, do African and Ugandan traditions have a place in the westernized world? Yeah, because it's, it comes to, uh, it's the same thing. We're not the audience. Who cares what we think on the subject? Yeah, but it's a question of like every country has that conflict over time. It's an internal conflict of this mm -hmm. is the way we used to do things. Should we still be doing things this yeah. way? We used to herd wild cows in the swamps of Florida, but should, <laughs> should we, we still, should we build Miami? But it's done so much more eloquently <laughs> in this book than it was in A Land Remembered. <laughs> yes. So that was a theme that I really enjoyed, and that's something that Jennifer McCombie made use of mm -hmm. by focusing intrinsically on Uganda. Yes. And another thing that's a theme throughout the novel is twins. Yes. So... In Uganda, giving birth to twins was not taken as normal. Like, it was a very special occurrence. Mm -hmm. However, it could have been seen as a blessing or a curse. Oh. So this is kind of heightened on in the book um, where we see, like, Saubi is viewed as a curse because she was separated from her twin. Yes. And the names of the characters in the book is also important. Ooh. So the firstborn twin name is, and excuse my pronunciation, I'm going to do the best I can, Bobby Ria, which is the wife that Chintu does not like. Okay. And by the way, we, and by we, I mean Aaron, did our best to look up pronunciations for the character names. Mm -hmm. And there were, frankly, so many of them that they were, like, hard to find sources on. So we have some of them, but not all of them. And then for the second-born twin, Nakato is 
for a female, which was the wife that the wife that Shintu actually liked. And liked. there's a couple different versions of the name. What I'm referencing here says Nakato, but I know there are a couple different versions of it as mm-hmm. well. So twin births are were back then and are still now considered to be extraordinarily important. So that comes across very clearly for me. Yes. The book. I mean, basically every single section had twins in it. Yes, it is something that's very important. I don't understand it as deeply as a reader who's familiar with Ugandan customs probably would. Mm-hmm. But that significance is made very clear and that parallel of like a blessing and a curse. Yes. Because it's a blessing if you're not separated from your twin, but if you are separated, that's another form of curse. Yeah. I think there's additional stuff in there that you're right that's like much more specific to Ugandan culture, but that's on the level where I'm like, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Like, so maybe we don't see all of the iceberg, but we see the top at yes. least. <laughs> And we're doing our best to dig deeper. Just for some, you know, on a literary analysis level, you know, we get the symbolism of that. So this book, as we've already said, was inspired a lot by the novel Things Fall Apart, which has to do with telling of African stories and a family curse that's also a story of survival, Mm -hmm. which that theme comes across very, very clearly in this. They are still... Chintu's line is still surviving. They're still kicking, you know? And that's interesting. And that was an interesting story, Things Fall Apart, because that is talking about, like, the last lifetimes that aren't touched by colonization. Okay. Partway through the book is when the Christian missionaries show up. Oh, okay. Yes. And so the beginning of the book and the end of the book, the conflict, they evolve because the Christian missionaries do show up. So it's kind of at a at a midway point, I think, between a story like this and a story like Homegoing. And another thing we've touched on a little bit is, you know, consider, especially we touched on it more because this book does have that modern period, you know, classifying it as historical fiction. But on a broader level, this novel kind of defies the historical fiction genre because it basically asks the question, is history true? Like, Mm. do we know that the story of Chintu has been passed down accurately? Do we know that this curse is real? The author used many archives to, you know, research, find the story, but a lot has not been recorded. And you think especially in countries that were, you know, influenced by colonization where a lot of those records, you know, It's like the old saying that history is told by the victor. Yeah. A lot of those stories of Ugandan populations were never recorded, were destroyed by imperialist forces. So there's not necessarily records to go back and identify everything of the way people were living at the time. So a quote from this is all referencing the same article because it was an amazing review of this book. One quote from there that I really liked is, history is built out of silences and fictions. Mm, That is true. So... You're being told these stories throughout this novel. You're seeing the silence, the absence of family members, the absence of relatives who can tell them the story, especially like Zubi. You're missing out on that. You're seeing the fictions like the with the twin son. You're seeing he was lied to, so his history was changing. And that's important for me, at least when I'm evaluating the historical accuracy, because it makes you question the historical accuracy of anything. Yeah. No, you're right. That like you... Things should always be questioned. Yes. I think people think of this much more easily in terms of scientific discoveries that you yes. then need to apply those same principles to history, which is like when you go back and you think of like, okay, what did humankind think the construction of the atom was in mm-hmm. 1850? We thought we knew then. We don't. We think we know now. Maybe in the future we'll think something else. Mm-hmm. Like we thought we knew everything 
you know, history as it was, quote unquote, back then we have a different interpretation of it now. We're going to have a different interpretation of it in the future. Mm-hmm. And also, you're definitely going to put this article that you referenced into the show notes. Yes, For I people will. to click on and read for themselves. 100%. And if you didn't like the article, comment and let us know why, because I'd be interested in hearing. Yes. Um, but, and again, it goes back to this idea of so much, so many stories we read about Africa, so many books about Africa are, are about the slave trade or about colonization. And mm-hmm. everything else is kind of silenced. And we don't get to hear many of those stories that focus on people's lives the way they were actually living. Mm-hmm. So this book kind of fills in the gaps. And I liked that. I appreciated that because it's the side of history people don't talk about. I really enjoy the idea of that's the I, the purpose of historical fiction. One of mm-hmm. the purposes of it is to say we don't know what happened here. Here's my idea. Yes. We talked about that our very very first episode, the idea that we don't know what killed Hamnet and we don't know why Shakespeare never wrote about the plague. And Maggie O'Farrell said, "Here's my idea." Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that we're accepting those things as true or that we're pointing at those books and being like, "Hey, you made that up." It's us as people using art as a way to figure out something about ourselves, about humankind, not to get too philosophical about it. I feel like this episode has been pretty philosophical. Yeah, if there's any book to get that way on, it's definitely Chintu. Oh, yeah, especially of the ones we've read. Yes. Could you imagine if we went on like this about the spy? <laughs> <laughs> that one would be so much more woo-woo, though. Like, we need our crystals, we need oh our incense, God. like, we need... Let probably me go home to- and get the box of crystals from my desk drawer. Yeah, we probably need to be, like, doing LSD or something. Like, <laughs> that's what the spy was about, which is crazy. So to wrap up the history section, (laughs) I want to end with one final quote I read while I was researching. Okay. Chintu was written, therefore, for the people for whom the name Chintu means something. And that just kind of highlights everything we've said about this book. We are not the audience. No, we're not. This book was not written for us, and... But we can still appreciate it. And we can still help to share it to help people who it was written for find it. Yeah. So there we go. So there we go. So... I have an update on our star calculator. (laughs) Data scientist Ashley's Google Drive is currently broken. (gasps) So we're going to have to do this manually. Is it working for you? Yes. Okay, well, you're Ashley likes me more than you. Okay, well, that's a known fact. Okay, well, here. I will read out loud the categories, and I'll do mine first. Okay. And then while I do that, you can add yours together on another sheet or on your... I will do manually. (laughs) Okay, so... Again, our categories on our star calculator from data scientist Ashley are historical accuracy, vibes, prose, originality, and characters. And so I will say, for me, historical accuracy, I'll give it a four, because that's kind of my default, unless I feel like something really extraordinary has been done with the history, but nothing is like wrong with it. You know, I'll throw it a four. Mm -hmm. Vibes. Some parts the vibes were so good, and some parts the vibes were so bad. I know. Let's say three. I'm going to go three for vibes, just because it really did. It threw itself up, and it threw itself down. Mm -hmm. It was all over the place. Pros, I'm going to go four, because it was very good. Some of the density, I'm taking the point away for. Okay. It's not, it's necessary. It's not always crazy, like, but again, that's just not my, not my cup of tea. Yeah. Uh, four again for originality because this book is you know you can't say that it's not it definitely is but for characters I'm gonna have to go two just because 
even though they were well-rounded characters, I just didn't enjoy most of them. That's fair. And we spent a lot of time in their heads. So that gives me an average of 3.4. I think I gave this a three on Storygraph. Okay, that sounds good. So that's around where it should be. So for historical accuracy, I'm going to give it, I'm struggling with history. Let me come back to historical accuracy. Okay. Because I'm struggling with that. Vibes, I'm going to give it a two because... Some of the vibes were just... Some of the vibes were weird. It wasn't always my cup of tea. The prose, I'm going to give it a four because I did think for the most part it was beautifully written, but like you, I'm taking a point off of the density. Originality, I'm going to give it a five. I thought it was incredibly original, and I think after doing the research, that added that extra point to me for originality. It was originally a four, and then after I did all the research, I bumped it up. Even more. Characters, I'm going to give it a one. (laughs) I did not really like the characters. Well, also, like we said, this book was a very philosophical book with a lot of lofty ideas. Yeah. And sometimes in a book like that, the actual characters are just, like, less important. I don't think... Exactly. I don't think they mattered as much as the theming did. Yeah. So just, like, we don't love them as much, but that's maybe not the priority. I think for historical accuracy, going back to that one, I was originally going to give it a three because it doesn't... The history is... You know, it's in a lot of it's in modern day. There's yeah. only so much history. That's true. But because it poses all those questions about, you know, the silent parts of history, the histories that are not commonly told, mm-hmm. I'm going to push it to a four. Go ahead. Why not? Because I think it deserves that. Because that's a question that I don't always think about when reading historical fiction. Yeah. And we should. And we should. And this asks a very important question and gives a voice to a population that doesn't get to have their history shared as broadly as you know, Shakespeare. Yeah. So that gives me a score of 3.2 and I gave this a three. Okay. Yeah. So we were, I think, of very similar minds on this book. We have had our disagreements, but I don't think here, I think here, honestly, we aligned pretty closely. Yeah. I think probably this and Snowflower were our two closest. Finger. Yeah. (laughs) Literally, these books are old same. Oh my gosh. Our opinions are old same. Exactly. Okay. So on our five or flop scale, I would say that you and I would give this a fine. I would give it a fine, but I would see how for some readers it would be a five, and for other readers it would be a flop. Yes. Here's the thing about the fine rating, which makes it so tricky. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a fine in like, eh, it's fine. It's a mid-book, you know? And sometimes it's a fine as in like, we can't give it a five, because five is like, mwah. Yeah. But it's good. It's, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of gray area But we also can't give it a flop. No. This is not a flop. It's a fine. Yes. Yes. I think that's fair. All right. So next week, we are headed back to North America. We're reading Mexican Gothic by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. And that's one we're going to talk about a lot if we should be reading that as a historical fiction book. Um, We both have some strong opinions on that, I think. Yes. I think this one's a bit out of the box for the rest of the season. But it'll be an interesting our, episode. Our last two books of the season are both a little wonky, though. So it's okay. That's it's true. Okay. We did go a little wonky. But I think that's fun. I think it's fun. You know, if we just read straight history all the time, we need those mixed in genres. Yeah, we well. need some spice in our life. Um, in the meantime, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at FiverFlop underscore pod. You can also find us on Storygraph by joining our season one reading challenge to read along with us. And if you have any questions or anything else in the meantime, you can contact us via email, fiverfloppodcast at gmail.com, or use the recommendation form in our bio to suggest a book for us to read. And in the meantime, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading.